Good morning. Let's turn in the Word of God to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. It is very good to be with you today for the conference. And I'm glad to see many friends from other places around Florida, and as well as many I've met just since coming here today. So we look forward to a time of fellowship around the Lord's things, and especially in the Word of God as we seek to hear what the Spirit would say to us through the Holy Scriptures. Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to start with verse 3. Actually, let me start with verse 2. Verse 2. Philippians 1 and verse 2. Philippians 1, 2. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer for you, excuse me, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is fitting for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace." For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory of and praise of God. Now the theme of our conference today is the unity of believers and its importance to the church. And as a subtitle to that, the dangers of disunity and the adverse effect that that can have on the work of God. And when I think of the unity of believers, this book looms large in my mind because it is a central theme of the Philippian epistle. Now, Philippians is many people's favorite books, and it yields its share of favored memory verses. One can think of chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Of course, we have that wonderful passage in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that speaks about the voluntary abasement and subsequent exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can think about chapter 4, where Paul will talk about being able to do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And yet, we don't want to just dip in at the greatest hits, as it were, of Philippians and see those verses that are so memorable to us necessarily without remembering the backstory, without remembering the greater tapestry of which these things are just salient parts. We want to look at Philippians today and see in our three messages together 
how the unity of the people of God is to be fostered and maintained, and how disunity is to be rejected and avoided at all costs. Now, it is interesting to me, the way Paul begins is with a theocentric viewpoint. Don't mind her, she hears my preaching all the time. This is a typical response to uh, my messages. And this isn't even fire and brimstone, you know. But verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it may sound like a simple point, and perhaps to some of us it may seem even obvious today to say that when we talk about the unity of the people of God and any sort of framework for our thinking, it has to begin with God itself. You might say, well, that's obvious. I mean, Christians are all about faith in God, aren't they? We're all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we must start there. But you know the tendency throughout the last hundred years, and it continues into the new century, is for the church in the United States of America to increasingly marginalize the Lord Jesus Christ. Increasingly, we come together and we focus on externals. We focus on what we're doing. We focus on programs. We focus on pet agendas that we have. And less and less in the greater church at large do we see an emphasis upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a sad thing. Because when Christians begin to formulate their own plans and their own endeavors and and design things the way they want them to be, and then say, okay now, Lord, bless it. It's a bit like putting things the wrong way around, isn't it? Really what we are to do is to start with God and to start with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom He's revealed Himself and say, now Lord, what would you have us to do? After all, weren't they the first two questions of Paul's Christian life? On the day of his conversion, uh, actually in the moments of his conversion, as he was a proud, self-righteous Pharisee who was bent upon the destruction of what he saw as an aberrant cult, what he saw as a false religion, which people in those days were calling the way, because they unabashedly and unashamedly proclaimed the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, there's no other, the way, the truth, and the life, said the Lord Jesus in John 14.6. No one comes unto the Father but by Him. And Saul said, no, this is a false way. Because Saul was on that way, which Proverbs 14 talks about. The way which seems right to a man, but it ends in death. Because religious thinking among men focuses on man and what man can do and how man can please God or the gods or the great spirit or the great beyond or whatever they're trying to please in the spirit realm. But the Lord Jesus interrupted that false way. He put a roadblock right in Saul's path and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Notice, not my church, not the Christians, not the followers of the way, 
but why are you persecuting me? Because if you touch the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are touching what the Lord Jesus describes in surely what must be one of the most evocative metaphors of the New Testament. You are touching the body of Christ. So intimately does the Lord view His people. So close is their union with Him that He describes us as His body and He as the head. So if you touch a Christian... The Lord is keenly aware of it. He feels it. He is not aloof, that is to say, from what we encounter and what we experience. Whether that's persecution, as is so common in the world today against the church, or whether that's the trials of life, the Lord Jesus is the one who feels keenly what we go through. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what was that first question he asked? Who art thou, Lord? Now, his yeshiva training, all of his rabbinical training, had not gone to waste. He knew that if you saw a light above the brightness of the sun from heaven and heard a loud voice from heaven, that that must be God speaking to you. So he said, who art thou, Lord? But imagine the uh, tremendous paradigm shift that happened in his thinking. His whole world was turned upside down. Everything he thought was true was subverted. And everything he thought was false, he saw now to be true when he heard the voice come back and say, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Jesus, that name which he must have cursed. Jesus, that name which perhaps like many observant Jews today, when they hear that name, there's such antipathy, there's such ill feeling, and in their defense, I might say, that there's been a lot of terrible things done to Jewish people in the name of Christ. However, we should hasten to add that the Lord Jesus would never sanction any ill feeling toward the Jews. They are beloved for the Father's sake, Paul says. They are the people to whom the oracles of God were committed. They are people that God wants to save in this dispensation to make them part of the body and in the next dispensation to restore them to himself nationally and fulfill all of the covenants that he made with them. So God is not anti-Semitic. He's not anti-Jewish. He doesn't support racism of any sort. Paul would say in Acts 17, he's made of one blood, all the nations of the earth. So if you have a problem with other races and other ethnicities, and the Jew in particular, you must take it up with the Creator. He's the one who's appointed things as they are. But nonetheless, when he heard that name Jesus, perhaps like many Jewish people today, he was just filled with angst. He was just filled with anger. He he would maybe spit when he heard that name normally. But now, the voice coming from heaven, so evidently from God, and he heard the voice say, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. How that must have totally floored him. He just didn't know at first what to do. His second question, Lord, what would thou have me to do? You see, the first thing you have to do is get at the identity of the Lord. Who is really Lord? Who really calls the shots? 
Well, this same Jesus whom man crucified is the one whom God hath made Lord in Christ, Peter would say to us. This Jesus whom men still curse and vilify today is the one who is going to be the judge of all the earth. Because the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, John 5 says, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. So you start with the Lord Jesus, and you must say, Jesus is Lord. That means He has authority. That means He is sovereign. That means He calls the shots. That means we do it His way. We don't do it our way and say, now Lord, sanction it. Now, Lord, bless it. Now, Lord, this is how I'd like it. Please come in and rubber stamp it. No, 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 no. We say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And so he starts with that view of God that says grace to you. It's God's unmerited favor. It's God giving you what you don't deserve. And the result of peace. We have been justified by faith, Romans 5.1 says, and therefore we have peace with God. And that has to be the starting point of our unity, our identity in Christ. Because you know people today identify by all sorts of things. People join different organizations. I was with a man, a brother in the Lord, a few months ago in a local diner that I like to frequent once in a while. And we went out to lunch, and we were there talking, and just unconsciously we slip into calling one another brother. That's our normal mode of address. Now, this brother, he's about six foot one, and, uh, you know, I'm obviously not quite six foot one, just a little bit under that. And, you know, he is a brother who hails originally from Egypt, so it's obvious when you look at us that we're not from the same biological family in the normal sense of that term. But here we were calling one another brother. And suddenly an older gentleman stopped by our table and he said, are you guys brothers? And we said, well, yes, we are. So he reached out his hand and he shook my hand. And, you know, I've gotten all kinds of handshakes in my life. I mean, Preachers like politicians, they, they do a lot of handshaking and occasionally a little baby kissing as well. But, you know, I shook this man's hand and sometimes you get the dead fish, you know, the, the real limp handshake. Sometimes, if you ever meet Billy Skelton's brother, Malcolm, from Boulevard Chapel down in South Florida in Pembroke Pines, that guy, I always joke with him, it's like he winds up to a handshake, you know? I mean, he just, I feel... The bones in my hand straining and the ligaments stretching when I shake that guy's hand. It, it's a firm, and dare I say, enthusiastic and exuberant handshake. But this handshake was neither the limp one or the very exuberant one. It was different. And I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with this handshake? This is really weird. And then he shook my friend's hand, and my friend, I found out later, was thinking the same thing. And all of a sudden, he started to recite, I was commander of such and such post, I was member of this, I was such and such and that. And by the terms he was using, it was obvious he was going through a series of credentials, and all of a sudden the light came on in my head. This guy's a mason. And when he heard us talking about being brothers, he thought we were masons. And I said, oh, excuse me, sir, that's what the handshake was. It was apparently the secret handshake. But, you know, I was not initiated, so I missed that. 
And, and so this guy said, well, I said to him, oh, excuse me, sir. I said, we're not brothers in that sense of the word. I said, we're brothers because we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're part of the same spiritual family. And then he tried to backtrack and, and sort of say, well, I'm a Christian too, and so forth. And so we got into a conversation there. But it, it was interesting how his identity was very clearly focused around this social organization of the Masons. And you can find many people like that in our society today. There are people that group by their hobbies. There are other people that group by their football teams. You know, some that are very fond of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for example. They might have a few in the house here. I won't mention I'm a Redskins fan. I have much shame and reproach if, uh, foisted upon me, especially during the last two decades. But anyway, we're hoping for better things. But people find their identity in many things. But right from the outset, Paul says, your identity has to be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace and peace that we enjoy from them that becomes the foundation of our unity. Because right off the bat, he begins to talk about, verse 4, how he thanks God upon every remembrance of them. Now, I don't know if you've had the experience of uh, finding fault with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're not careful, like in any family, you can find yourself... Uh, becoming aware of the faults and shortcomings of your brothers and sisters, and even their sins sometimes. And it's a very difficult thing sometimes to deal with, you know. And sometimes, if we're not careful, there can develop problems between believers. We'll see that that happened to this very church in Philippi, between two prominent sisters. But you'll notice Paul begins with something that I think is very salutary, for the unity of the people of God. And that is that he prayed for the believers. And he said, basically, every time I'm thinking of you, I always, in every prayer of mine for you, I make requests with joy. So the implication is, when he thinks of them, he's praying for them and making requests for them with joy. Now, was it that Paul was overly Credulous, You know, was he sort of naive about people's problems? Did he not know how, you know, cumbersome and how bothersome the people of God can be? Oh, I tell you, you read the epistles, he knew the people of God had problems. He knew about their bad points. You didn't have to lecture Paul on how bad things were in the church. I mean, he could list off, I'm sure for you, a lot of things that were wrong, a lot of things that were being practiced that weren't right, a lot of sins that had been committed. And yet, look at how he looks at the people of God. I'm making requests for you all with joy. Now, how can you do that? How can you think about the sandpaper brother, the one who rubs you the wrong way? The squeaky wheel sister, the one who's always complaining and seems to want to have her own way. How can you think about them and yet make requests with joy? Well, because, <coughs> pardon me, because Paul is looking at them and he's saying, I'm remembering, first of all, verse 5, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And that's very important. This is another unifying thing among the people of God. 
<clears throat> that is, the gospel itself. They have had fellowship in the gospel with him. Now, we're going to find out in a very practical way in chapter 4, for example, when he comes to find to talk about these two sisters, Yodius and Syntyche, or as August Van Ryan used to call them, your Odius and Syntyche, when he talks about these two problem sisters, he is quick to remark of how they labored with him in the gospel. And when you come to Philippians, you find out that the gospel is not the area that only a select few Christians are to be involved in. It is not merely the arena where the gifted evangelist functions. But the gospel, in fact, is something that the entire church is to be involved in. We are all to be sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might say, but Uh, Mr. Preacher, I'm not bold, you know. I don't find it easy bringing it up with people. Uh, Believe me, I sympathize with you. I'm very brave behind this pulpit. I do all right preaching the gospel in public in venues such as this, and even on the street and in places I've, I've preached on university campuses where there were very few Christians there indeed. When I'm giving a public lecture, I, I find that very easy to do, just by nature of how the Lord has given me a certain gift. And yet, I'll tell you, one-on-one, I'm hopeless. When I go to Camp Horizon or other places like that, and I'm there preaching the gospel, I'm always praying, Lord, let my counselors be good follow-up workers. Because I'm horrendous at one-on-one work. It's not that I don't do it when I have the chance. It's not that I don't try to share the gospel in personal conversation. But often I feel like I'm quoting John 3.16 when I ought to be quoting John 5.24. Or maybe I'm in Romans 3.23 and really what they need to hear at that stage, you know, is another part of Romans 10 and 9 perhaps. Chapter 10 verse 9 that is. You know, we have different gifts and different abilities. And to some people, witnessing is as natural as breathing. Some people have a real knack for it, and I would even say a gift for it. I lived with a man back in my single days for a little time, and he was one of the most natural witnesses I ever met. He wasn't a public speaker. He would never preach the gospel in a setting such as this. But I heard him once witness to a wrong number. Now, at best, what I manage on a wrong number is civility. That's about the best I do. Oh, thanks for being a blockhead, you know, and getting the digits wrong. What, do you have spastic fingers like me or what? You know, I, I, I try not to be insulting. But he got a wrong number, and he shared the entire gospel with the wrong number. I said I couldn't believe this. Then he was calling to order a birthday cake for a youth group event. They they had this custom where he would have young people. He would go around the, the city where he lived, and he and another man, <coughs> pardon me, would take a van and a station wagon, and they'd pick up kids from uh, bad neighborhoods, you know, and they'd bring them to meeting. And every Sunday, therefore, they'd feed these kids after meeting. And every month... Some of those kids were having a birthday, so they got in the habit every month, once a month, they'd have a cake and they'd celebrate the birthday for every kid in that month. Well, I heard him on the phone ordering the cake from the store, and somehow he brings it round to the gospel. And for like five minutes is explaining the gospel to the person at the bakery. 
I just couldn't believe it, you know? And there are people like that, that whatever happens, they seem to be able to bring it round to the Lord. Now, I'm the guy sitting on the airplane, and I'm thinking hard and praying hard, where's my entree, you know? And once in a while, it seems to click and go right. But much more often, I find myself at best able to say one or two things, and maybe the other person doesn't want to continue the conversation. Now, what does that mean I should do? Should I stop sharing the Lord Jesus Christ because it doesn't come natural? Because I don't feel I'm good at it? We don't have the luxury of checking out and giving up. We have to continue our fellowship in the gospel. We have a common responsibility to share it. So if you can't speak, if that's not your strong point, give out gospel tracts. My neighbor down the street, in fact, he's the fellow who took us uh, on our way to the airport the other night. He was converted nine years ago. He was saved out of decades of addiction to drugs and alcohol. I mean, this guy was a rough guy. He has a tract with his testimony. It's called Armed and Dangerous, because that's what the police used to say about him. And he was a man whom the police feared. He's about six foot seven and a big strapping guy. He was a street fighter. He was a bodyguard at times for drug dealers. He was involved heavily in the drug trade. And how he got saved was he found a tract on the street. And he couldn't throw the tract away. He read it. He got convicted. He was in fear of hell. And he didn't want to think about it. But he held on to that tract for a year. And where he'd be living in different places, he'd be in crack houses, he would hide this tract in places where he could come back and get it. And sometimes he'd take it out and he'd read it. And he'd tremble as he thought of his sin and hell and his need of a Savior. Finally, he wrote the people that put out the tract, a group in Ohio, and they contacted a local Baptist pastor who went down into the nastiest neighborhood in Redding, Pennsylvania, and we have the third highest murder rate in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania behind Pittsburgh, thank you, brother, behind Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, much larger cities. And he sought this man out, and he led him to Christ. And that was all through a gospel tract. I know of another man who similarly ran a hotel in a neighborhood in British Columbia where you could break all Ten Commandments in one block, as it was described to me. What led to his conversion was he went out to lunch with a liquor salesman who had flown in from Toronto to sell him some alcohol for the hotel he ran. And as they were sitting at the lunch, the liquor salesman was not a believer. That may surprise you, but he wasn't a believer. And uh, as the man sat there talking to the salesman, he said, you know, I just don't know why I go on. Is there really any point to life? And the liquor salesman pulled out a gospel track, and he said, here, somebody handed this to me in Toronto Airport. You need this more than I do. And it was through that track the man got saved. It wasn't even given to him by a believer, you know. Whoever that believer was that gave that tract out in Toronto has no idea. But the Lord saved that man. There's other ways of getting the gospel out. I know a family that put up a banner with gospel verses on it. They hand-painted it on a white sheet and hung it on their front porch. They happened to live on one of the busiest streets 
of the city of Kearney, New Jersey. And they put up that sheet as a testimony to their neighborhood of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lots and lots of ways. But also, the fellowship goes beyond our witness to our support of other people that are out there sharing the gospel. Paul, remember, was a pioneer missionary. Paul was going into regions where Christ hadn't been named. Romans 15, he talks about that. That was his burden. He wanted to build not on another man's foundation, but he wanted to lay brand new foundation for the Lord Jesus. And they fellowshiped with Paul in the gospel. They fellowshiped, chapter 4, by giving him a material gift. Now, sometimes we call those gifts of fellowship, and that's appropriate. Because when you share with a worker, you're sharing in the work that they've done. The Lord Jesus enunciated the principle this way in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever receives a prophet, receives a prophet's reward. (laughs) Whoever receives a prophet in the name of a prophet, he said, receives a prophet's reward. There are high stakes to opening your home and even your swimming pool to the servants of God. There are future rewards in view. And not only what you give materially, but I would argue more importantly, prayer. Praying for the workers. And Paul in this chapter adamantly tells them, I'm confident of my deliverance. This will work out to my salvation, he says. A word that we could render deliverance because of your prayers that I'll be delivered to you. I'm confident that your praying is efficacious, he's saying. I'm confident that it's achieving something. And so he speaks about the fellowship in the gospel, verse 6, from the first day until now. But then look at how he sees these believers, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. Until the day of Christ Jesus, rather. He's looking at the believers, and he's not taking a snapshot of them real time in that particular year. He's looking at them as they're going to be at the finish line. He's looking at them as when they're standing before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. And when all of this world's dross has been burnt away. 1 Corinthians 3, when the wood, hay, and stubble has been burnt up. And the gold, silver, and precious stones are what remains. He's looking at them, in other words, in their future perfection in Christ. Because Romans 8 makes it evident, doesn't it, brothers and sisters, that God has a glorious plan for believers. Not just to save us for now. Sometimes you hear versions of the gospel preached today, and you would think the gospel is all about now. Come to the Lord and he'll make you happy. Come to the Lord and he'll solve all your problems. Come to the Lord and things will get better for you. Uh, That's not the gospel of the New Testament. Paul said in Acts 14 to new converts in Lystra, it's through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom. He said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The Lord Jesus said it in Matthew 10, If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, 
what are they going to say to the members of the household? If they take the Lord and they lambast and and curse the Lord, do you think his emissaries are going to be treated any better? Certainly not. The Lord said you're going to be thrown out of synagogues. You're going to be flogged. In John 16, he said, the time's going to come when he who kills you will think he's doing God a service. Now, that could be ripped from the headlines of today's papers, couldn't it? There are believers on death row in Iran today for no other crime but their faith in the Lord Jesus. There are perhaps up to 250,000 political prisoners in North Korea being held in a secret system of prisons, more like concentration camps, or to use the Soviet term, gulags. And much like the gulag archipelago that Solzhenitsyn wrote about, North Korea has maintained their system for longer than Stalin had his. And many of the prisoners in those prisons are in prison simply because they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all of them are there for that. There are others that are considered dissidents and dangerous to the government and so forth. But many are believers. It's a dangerous thing to be a believer. There will be more problems in your life if you come to Christ than you had before in certain areas. You know, the devil leaves you alone if you're in his realm to a certain extent. You're not going to be persecuted for indulging in your lusts and your sins as an unbeliever. But if you're a believer and want to live differently, that's going to mark you out. It's dangerous to be a believer. But Paul looks at them and he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that in spite of your problems, in spite of what you are right now, in spite of your failings, in spite of the persecution and trials you're enduring, the one who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. As Darby put it in his wonderful hymn, Nor I alone, thy loved ones all complete, In glory round thee there with joy shall meet. All like thee, for thy glory like thee, Lord. Objects supreme of all, by all adored. You see, Romans 8 says that the ones that the Lord has saved and justified, he's also sanctified. And he's eventually going to glorify. We shall share in the glory of Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be careful when we look on our fellow believer. To remember what they're going to be one day before the Lord. Not what they are presently. And again, we're not called to merely pretend sin doesn't happen. If a brother or sister sins against us, there are procedures for that. We're to go and tell them their fault, Matthew 18. But that has to be one of the most undercarried out principles of the New Testament, isn't it? We're more inclined to bury it, to say, well, it doesn't happen, but secretly to be bitter about something, to harbor grudges, and to complain about one another. Oh, how sad. That ought not to be. We can look at one another as we're going to be one day. We're going to be like Christ. And how we need to speak to one another and act toward one another right now 
is to foster that activity of the Spirit of God to form Christ in us. Paul would say, my little children whom I labor and travel over. He's using the language of birth. Now, many of you women here know that experience better than I do. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm exactly ignorant of what happens uh, being the father of three children and a fourth on the way. And my wife is one of the mildest, kindest people I've ever known. But let's just say I've seen her get louder, okay? I've seen her go through tremendous pain. That's how labor is. (coughs) Pardon me. And Paul says, that's my experience that I labor so much for the people of God, that I pray for them, that I exhort them, that I lose sleep over them, that I'm invested in their lives, that it's like labor and travail to me until Christ be formed in you. I want you to be like Christ. I want to help you be like Him. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, if you're a teacher... You look for opportunities to instruct your brothers and sisters in the truth as it is in God's Word. If you're an exhorter, you seek to encourage them and challenge them maybe. If you're one who has the gift of hospitality, you seek to have them in your home or take them out and do things for them that are going to help them along in their walk with the Lord. And you talk to them about the Lord as you're doing it. If you have the gift of helps, I won't need to tell you what to do for them. You'll see the needs. You'll go and work for them. It's a matter of knowing what the Lord's given you to be a steward of and then using it for His people and not complaining about them as you're doing it. Oh, they don't know how much I do in this assembly. Oh, other people ought to be doing this, you know. Uh, More people should be doing what I'm doing. Because we tend to look at things through the lens of our gift. Well, doubtless we could use a lot more of all of the gifts being used. But that's not our business in the grand scheme of things. Our business is to take our gift and use it for the Lord's people. Now, he was thankful for these Philippians for this fellowship that they had in the gospel because he said, it's meet for me to think this of you all, verse 7, because I have you in my heart. Does that describe your feelings toward the people of God? You look at the believers and you say, I have them in my heart. When I'm separated from them, it pains me. Or are you just as glad to get away from the saints for a weekend? I'm glad I don't have to put up with that lot this weekend, you know? I'm on vacation. I can go to church somewhere where the people are nicer and where they don't have problems. (laughs) It's easy to think that about a church when you're just there one Sunday, you know. It's when you're in fellowship in a place, when you're there week after week, you begin to see the fault lines. You begin to see the problems and the blemishes. But he's looking at these believers and he's saying, no, I carry you around in my heart. So here I am in Rome under house arrest chained to a Roman guard, but you're in my heart, you're with me. I'm thinking about you, I'm taking my time to write to you, I'm praying for you, because I have you in my heart. I think about you all the time. And I've known saints like this. 
My dad, toward the latter years of his life, he's with the Lord now. My mom is here with us this weekend. We're thankful to have her with us. But my dad, as he got older, and especially as he had more physical problems and pain, he would find himself awake a lot at night. And he used to try to go through the chapel directory in his mind, the list, you know, of everybody in fellowship in the chapel. And he would go through and he would pray for the saints at night. He would pray for everybody in our chapel every day. And I've met many believers like that. And I think what a tremendous work of God. How tremendously unifying. When we take upon ourselves praying for one another, we're really doing what Paul says in Galatians 6, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're not to be lone wolves or lone rangers. Oh, now I'll have the William Tell overture in my head all morning. But never mind. We're not to be out there uh, on our own. Oh, you must be getting sleepy. There was very little response. You know, (laughs) William Tell overture was the theme song for the old Lone Ranger program in the 50s. With, uh, was it Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels? I loved to watch that in reruns at my grandparents' house when I was little. But anyway. (laughs) That's extra credit if you can remember that later. But... uh, No, we're not to be lone wolves, are we? We're part of a body. We're part of a fellowship. That word fellowship has the idea of having a common share in something. One of the cognate words to that word is used in Luke 5 to talk about Peter and Andrew, the fishermen, (coughs) who were out there and they let down their nets and they got such a big catch that it was pulling the boat down and the nets were breaking. And they had to call to their partners, the ones who had the fellowship with them is the word. The ones who had a share in their business. Now I tell you, there are a lot of businesses that I look at the headlines and it doesn't mean anything to me if they're having trouble, you know. I mean, I can hear about various technology companies and I say, well, I don't own any products by that company and I don't have any of their stock, so I don't care what happens to that company. But if I had a loved one who worked for that company, it would be a different thing. Or if they were my employer, I would certainly care what happened to the company, wouldn't it? Because I'd have something invested. I'd have a share in what goes on in that company. And it's the same with the church. He says, you're fellow partakers with me, in verse 7, in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Now, there he's at the gospel again. And it's wonderful to see this emphasis as he opens Philippians. Because he's under house arrest, and when he looks at his circumstance, he's not thinking, oh, poor me. Oh, look at all the trouble that's happened to me. He's thinking about, what an opportunity for the gospel. I'm here to defend the gospel, the word is apologia, from which we get apologetics. I'm here to give a reasoned answer for the gospel, in other words. Just what Peter said in First Peter 3. To be ready always to give an answer to him that asks us concerning the hope that is within us. Paul says, this will be my opportunity to give a reasoned answer for the gospel. A message that is spoken against and that is attacked. Paul well knew it because he himself had formerly been a persecutor. But also the confirmation of the gospel. 
I'm here to show this gospel is real. I'm here to show that it works. I'm here to show that Christ's gospel is not just something that saves your soul for heaven. Thank God it does that. Not just something that delivers from hell. Thank God it does that as well. But something that makes you such a new creation in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that you can be in jail and still be saying, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How do you have joy? In a prison cell. I mean, the founding story of the church at Philippi has that key note, doesn't it? Acts chapter 16, Paul's second missionary journey. He and Silas are put in prison. You talk about a crime they didn't commit. All they did was cast out a demon out of a demon-possessed woman. All they did was proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were taken and put in jail by the upstanding business people of that community. Because many times it's the respectable business people of the community that are most invested in seeing the status quo preserved and in sinful things going on. There are many stocks tied to pornography and tied to illicit entertainment today in our world. Many business people that prosper out of other people's degradation. And so these business people didn't like losing the object of their investment, namely this demon-possessed woman. So they brought Paul to the local officials, had them beaten and put into prison. So what was their response? Did they burn their mattress and yell, Attica, Attica? Well, no, that wouldn't have made sense. But anyway, no. They were there singing and praising the Lord at midnight. How were they doing that? Was it one of these cushy Norwegian prisons, you know, air-conditioned and well-heated and cable TV and all this kind of thing? No, it wasn't that sort of prison at all. They had their feet in stocks and their hands in chains. And as they were there, they were praising the Lord. It was so impressive, so different, that it shut the mouths of the other prisoners. I don't know if you've ever been to prison. I have. They always let me out, thank the Lord. I've gone in to preach. And you go into prisons, let me tell you, they're very noisy places. It's tough to get those guys to be speechless. But they had never seen anything like this. How can you have your feet in the stocks and your your hands in the chains and your back is bleeding from your wounds and yet you're singing? What kind of joy is it that so transcends your circumstances? It's the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul looked at his chain in Philippians 1, he says, this is my chain in Christ. And because of this chain, all that are in the praetorium have heard the gospel. Now, the praetorian guard was the elite. They were kind of like the Navy SEALs of the Roman army. But many of them were tasked with the important job of protecting the Caesar. They were kind of like his secret service protection, but more faithful by reputation uh, than our present secret service, unfortunately. In any case, they were tasked with protecting the Caesar. And yet they were also tasked with guarding his political prisoners. So as the prisoners would be rotated in, you could see them, well, what duty have you pulled today? Well, I've got to go guard that guy, Paul. (laughs) Okay, good. So you go in and you guard Paul. Now, what do you think Paul is going to talk about with the Romans? (laughs) 
Can you see Paul? Hey, I heard a funny one on the way to the forum today. No, I can't see that quite. Or, hey, what happened at the Colosseum lately? How are the gladiators doing, you know? Anybody interesting been fed to the lions lately? No, when the guards got in there, Paul said, do you know what I'm in for? (laughs) You know why Caesar thinks I'm so dangerous? Because I belong to the God of heaven. And I'm related to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved me. And once upon a time, I hated this message. And I even was responsible for the deaths of Christians and for their imprisonment. But then I met the Lord and he changed my whole life. And because of that, when you get to the penultimate verse of Philippians, the second to the last one in chapter 4, Paul can say, they that are of Caesar's household greet you. All the saints greet you. (laughs) There's Christians in Caesar's household. Now, historians tell us that probably means some of Caesar's slaves got saved. You know, eventually, though, in later decades, it's very well known that members of the royal family were even converted to Christ. Because as we see in 2 Kings 5, in the incident of the general Naaman of Syria, A slave girl can have a great testimony if she's going to speak about the Lord. The gospel had gotten right inside the four walls where Caesar lived. Now, if you wanted to get the gospel today to some world leader, and maybe to a reclusive dictator like um, Mr. Kim of North Korea, how would you do that? How would you get the gospel into a closed country? How would you go before a powerful person that doesn't want to hear it? I mean, you couldn't go door to door like that. You know, can you see him at the palace door? Hi, we'd like to share some seed sowers, you know, that you could hang up around the palace. Do you think they'd be let in? No, seed sowers are great, but you wouldn't get into the palace that way. Do you think Caesar would just be walking down the street one day and he could hear your street preaching? Not likely. So here's how God got the gospel to Caesar. He took one of his best spokesmen and he put him in jail. (laughs) Now, is that your idea of evangelism? I mean, if I said, do you want to really see the gospel spread in Tampa? Okay, here's the first thing. We're going to take your best preacher and put him in jail. Would that sound like a good strategy to you? Who wants to volunteer for that? (laughs) No, I'll take meetings in northern Canada in the wintertime or anything but that. Not jail. You know, prison ministry is okay, but not from the inside, please. I don't want to give up my freedom. But Paul says, I want you to know, verse 12, the things that have happened to me have happened rather to the furtherance of the gospel. Because here I am, and everybody in the praetorium is hearing the gospel because of my chains. This has given me a wonderful platform for witnessing to Romans and to Caesar. I used to have a friend now with the Lord, who when he was dying of cancer, he had been a missionary for decades in Africa. And he said to me, Keith, this has been wonderful, you know, as I've been sick, I'm getting to tell so many Jewish people about their Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. I never got to share the gospel with so many Jewish people as I am now. (laughs) It took terminal cancer to do that. Would you want to do that? Is a soul worth that much? 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The love of Christ constrains us. And therefore, we exhort people like ambassadors to Christ. Be ye reconciled to God. If the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, can our death be too much to ask even for bringing others to Him? If that's what must happen to see people saved, Paul was saying, that's an appropriate price. Or as a 20th century martyr put it, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And how many people were won in an unreachable tribe through the deaths of those five young men on a beach in January of 1956? How many thousands of missionaries have been documented as dating their call to the mission field, to the story of those five missionaries? And it still goes on today. He says the things that have happened have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Because not only am I getting to preach the gospel here in Rome, some of the brothers, seeing that I'm willing to suffer for it and that I can't go around preaching where I did before, they're now more bold and they're preaching Christ. Now, there were problems. Paul knew it. Yes, there was some preaching, and they were trying to get their own following. They thought that would add affliction to Paul's bonds. But he said, no, I rejoice as long as they're preaching the real deal, as long as they're preaching the genuine gospel of Christ, I rejoice that Christ is being preached. And that's greatly liberating. Now, there's a lot of Christians in the world today that I couldn't agree with them on a lot of points of doctrine, but as long as they're preaching the sound gospel, I can rejoice in how the Spirit of God is using them in that aspect. And when we get to heaven, the Lord's going to sort us all out on our doctrine, you know? We all have blind spots. So look at how wonderfully unifying this is to view things from a theocentric and Christocentric way, and to view them through the lens of advancing the gospel. Because ultimately, Paul says, whether I die or am freed, it doesn't matter. Because for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you take my life away from me, well, that's the worst that can happen to me in this world. And what it means for me is more of Christ. But if I go on in this world, I get to build you up more in Christ. So it's a win-win situation for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, says Paul. Father, we're thankful for thy word. We're thankful for the unity that the Spirit of God produces among thy people. We pray that we'd be more unified. As we look at each other in Christ, as we think about what he's going to make us in glory, and as we think of our common task of spreading the gospel and living the gospel in a fallen world, help us to... Be zealous in this. We pray this in the Lord Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.